Mickey Buckins is one of the un unsung heroes of Muscle Shoals music or the music of the South in general. He's been a producer, engineer, songwriter, artist, musician, and in non-particular no, non, non order. He's, he's such a talented guy and it's my pleasure and honor not just to call him a collaborator but call him my friend and mentor. Welcome to the crazy Chester Radio Hour, Mickey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you very much for the kind words, Andres. And I know something that's, to me, is so much connected to who you are, and that is your Cherokee legacy. Would you, would you mind telling us a little bit about, you, about that connection? My grandmother was full-blood Cherokee, which uh, makes me a quarter, 25% uh, federally recognized Cherokee and uh, that I'm most proud of and I I've done quite a bit of research and study and I pursue that cause in any way and every way I can and I'm always looking to meet new people that are of Cherokee heritage and you'd be surprised how many I run into that they hadn't really thought about it much and now they're researching and into it and finding out about their family contacts and connections you know and it's it's been quite a brotherhood there are quite a few musicians around here that are Cherokee and Chickasaw but uh I, I meet I meet them all the time even my uh therapist when I was over doing my rehab recently found out that two of the ladies over there were Cherokee heritage and so I said oh well, I got two new sisters you know and uh that's, you know, it's uh, just something I'm very proud of, and I spend a lot of time trying to be involved with. Yeah, and uh, a little while ago, you took me to a powwow, and one thing that I remember most about it is all these rhythms, drums and dances and music, and I wondered if if you, you, you think that since you're a per percussionist too, that probably this legacy has seeped into you as a musician somewhat, I'm sure. I would I would bet money on it. I'm sure it's in the blood, you know. It's just, well, let's face it, the drum was the first instrument. I mean, and there's just something about rhythm, you know, and all peoples and all races, you know, have have celebrated and worshipped and uh, you know just gathered in a form of dance using some type per percussive instrument you know and I, I just love the uh, 
I love the Indian drum, the big drum, you know. I'd love to be, that's one of my goals, to be one of the four drummers on the big drum at the powwow. You know, it's a, it's a very special honor to be one of those drummers. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it just came on down through the blood, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, and uh, although you were not born here in the Shoals, you moved here at an early age. Would you mind maybe just sharing a little bit your very early years and then also kind of your your how you got involved in, in music? Well, I came up here from Birmingham where I was born, but I never lived there except just very short periods of time. Uh, I came here to live with my aunt and uncle when I was, uh, I guess maybe, oh, you know, it's hard for me to remember. I, I would think maybe seven or eight years old, but I had been here off and on periodically for for years, just when I was a young child, and I'd stay with them, and I'd stay with my grandparents uh, as well, and they moved around. My granddad was a Methodist minister, and they moved all over the place, you know, all over the state, and, and I would stay with them from time to time, but I pretty much permanently moved to live with my aunt and uncle when I was, I guess, about seven or eight years old to Tuscumbia. And uh, I was going to Cave Street School, and in fifth grade, I started playing trumpet. <clears throat> Excuse me, taking uh, trumpet lessons. So I was in the uh, in the band there playing trumpet in the sixth and seventh, well, fifth and sixth grade, yeah. And then when I got to junior high school, I continued on with the trumpet uh, through the uh, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth grades, and then I quit. Playing, playing the horn and started playing. I wanted to play football, so I played ball, you know, for a couple of years. And in the meantime, realized that I was a songwriter when I was in the fifth grade. I, I wrote my first song when I was in the fifth grade, and I realized I just really loved working with words and poems, you know, because at the time I couldn't play anything but a horn. And I'm going, well, if I'm gonna write songs, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need to learn to play guitar. Of course, what I needed to learn was piano, but there was not one in the family anywhere. I'd have sat around and plunked on that. Everybody needs to play piano. I know that now. That's the first thing Billy Sherrill told me years ago when I was sitting in his office, you know, and he said, Do you play piano? I said, No. He said, You got to. And he sat out on the piano and he played a chord. He said, Play this on the guitar. And I tried for about 15 minutes. He said, it's you can't do it. That's why you need to play this piano. <laughs> uh, so anyway, then Elvis hit. Once I saw Elvis, I said, yeah, that's it, guitar. Got to have a guitar. And I started playing, you know, trying to teach myself guitar. And I had a buddy that I went through school with that knew a few chords, and he showed me some chords. And I'd sit in class. I took a piece of... Uh, notebook paper, lined notebook paper, and I folded it the width of the neck of a guitar, and 
I used the lines on the paper as strings, and then I drew frets, and he would mark the dots on there for me. And so I sat and studied and learned, you know, G and A and E and D, you know, and F. And so that's what I did in school instead of studying. I was sitting there playing. I was I was holding that piece of paper like a neck and learning guitar chords, you know. But uh, that's when I got serious about writing songs and, and put the trumpet down and decided that I wasn't going to be the next great jazz player, you know. I, I was really into uh first song I learned a jazz tune when I was in fifth grade was was a tune by Clyde McCoy, which was a great jazz trumpeter named Sugar Blues. And uh, my band director, Milton Pearson, he wasn't real thrilled about me veering off the course trying to play some jazz and, and some uh, popular music. I'd buy the sheet music and learn some of Elvis's tunes on the horn, you know. But, you know, I went my way anyway and uh, followed my path to, to songwriting, you know, with a guitar. So the horn's still sitting over there, beat up and rusting, but, uh, you know, I don't play it anymore. Did you get to see Elvis live, or did you see him on No, TV? I did. I never did. And, uh, you know, I knew when he was here. I was, I was so young when he was here, I don't even think I was living here then at the Sheffield Community Center. But I did get to see Clyde McFadder there, and I saw uh, 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 see. Fats, Fats Domino came, and I saw Fats there, you know. But I never got to see Elvis when he played there at the community center. Yeah, so how did the transition from you writing songs and making music for yourself to performing and starting a band, how did that come about? Well, I was piddling around like everybody does and get together with some guys uh, there in Tuscumbia. And we fooled around a little bit and we put a little band together called the Ramrods. We played one gig down at the, the, the train station, the depot in Tuscumbia. Just that little tiny, it was just a little tiny room. I think we had maybe two people show up, you know. I mean, we made like zero money, but we played a gig, you know. Of course, we were, I'm, I'm talking, you know, 12 years old. Uh, but later on, some of those guys wound up being a part of the new breed later on years down the road, you know, the bass player and the keyboard player. And uh, I just kept on, you know, wanting to be, wanting to be in bands and, uh, after I got out of high school and went to Auburn, I put a band together down there, which I should have been studying, but I wanted to play music and I needed the, the gigs to help pay my way in school, you know. So we were playing weekends and going down to the coast and playing frat parties and whatever, you know. And we had a band called The Myths, M-Y-T-H-S, which wasn't a great name, but at the time it seemed like it. And uh, we got booked a lot around the southeast, you know, and just playing fraternity parties and stuff like that. Then when I came home from Auburn, uh, 
I went a year to uh, UNA, which was Florence State College at the time. And these guys that I had played with years ago had a little group they were working with, but they came to me and said, man, you want to be in this, let's put this band together, uh, and we want you to sing and play guitar. And that's what turned into the new breed. And so we played some years, you know, and uh, went over, saved our money up, and went over and booked three hours of studio time at Quinn Ivey's old studio in Sheffield. And we cut two songs that I had written, Silly Girl and The B-Side. It was a long, long time. And uh, Marlon Green was there, and I think Jimmy Johnson was there the day we recorded, and Marlon engineered it. And uh, he told Quinn, he said, man, you know, I think you ought to sign this band. And so Quinn offered us a deal that day, you know, and we signed with him. And uh, we had we had uh, three other singles out, later picked up by Jerry Wexler, and he put us on ATCO and released three other singles. And we our first single was a really hot southeastern record. It got a lot of airplay, an awful lot of airplay. And it was like the number one requested song on WLAY's uh, playlist for eight weeks in a row. And I still get calls from, from DJs and guys from London, from England, wanting to know if I got any copies of that record. Because they, they get a hold of copies of it and they burn it up and they say, every time we play this record, they hit the floor, you've got a hit here. And I said, well, I don't have a master. There's no copies and there's, you know, that's just, it's probably, Percy Sledge probably recorded one of his hits over our tape because that's the way Quinn did it back then to save money, you know. But, you know, anyway, it just went on and I went, I went from there to wanting to really seriously get in the record business, in the music business. The band thing was just kind of floating along and I, I was always fascinated by what was going on at Fame, and uh, David and Jimmy and Roger knew that Rick needed some help, and they started talking to Rick about they knew somebody that really they thought he could use, and they helped me get in, you know, and get down there, and and Rick gave me a chance and hired me as his assistant, and I did everything you can do, you know, from sweeping the floors to going to get the fish sandwiches to engineering, you know, setting up the gear and, and being his assistant engineer for all those years on all of his product, as well as being the chief engineer and studio manager. Later on, I did all the custom work and worked with him on his productions, and he would engineer his own for the most part, you know, and I'd be his assistant. Uh, you know, when I moved around from few towns, you know, doing the same thing, managing studios and producing records for different labels and uh, engineering. But I always, always loved writing songs better than any of it. And after some years of spending a year at a time producing some, some projects that just burnt me to a crisp, I just decided I want to go back to Muscle Shoals and I just want to write songs and play sessions. And 
get out from behind that side of the glass and get out on the floor and play because I really missed playing and uh, have more time to write songs. Yeah. And now I'm spending 99% of my time writing songs, and I just love it, you know. All right. And let's go back to fame just a little bit more. So Davey and Jimmy and Barry and Roger decided to leave fame and start Muscle Shoals Sound. And yeah. that kind of changed things for you somewhat, too, because obviously they were looking for a new band. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the Fame Gang, which is the group of musicians right. that took over at that time? Okay, well, when that came down, they wanted me to go with them real bad, you know, and I wanted to go bad because they're my brothers, you know, and I wanted to see them do well, and I thought it was a great idea that they were going to start a new studio, man, you know, and, and Wexler was already on board, and we'd done a lot of work with Jerry, you know, and was cutting great records, and but I was, or I, I, I just, I knew what they would need from me, and it would be engineering 24/7. That's what they needed, and that's what they wanted, and that I didn't want to do, because I was already doing what they wanted to try to do, which was produce records, and get into publishing, and and do some other things. And see, nobody, none of them was producing records at the time. I was. I already had projects under my belt out on Capitol and different labels. You know, I was already doing all that at Fame. So I said, okay, if I do this, if I go with them, I'm going to lose my production situation because they're not going to give me time to get an artist and get out on the floor and do my thing. They need me behind the board full time, you know. And so I had to make the decision. So I, I made the decision to stay with Rick and Let's put a new rhythm section together. And, of course, we got Clayton and we got Jesse up, you know, from from uh, Pensacola. We've been working with Papa Don Schroeder, which Papa Don used to come up to fame and record on the weekends, and I'm talking about days. He'd come in like on a Saturday morning and wouldn't leave till Sunday night, and I'd be there with him, and I'm talking no sleep. We'd cut until the very last minute, you know, we, we worked and mixed. And it when he left, he had the records under his arm. I mean, the mono mixes, ready to press the records. I mean, that's the way he did it. So we got those two great players, you know, and then uh, we needed, of course, we needed drums, you know. We needed key, uh, well, we had key, but we needed drums. And Junior Lowe was still around playing great guitar. And Travis was around playing great guitar. And uh, uh, we got Ring to come in and play drums. Uh, and pretty much, of course, we had a horn section already pretty much put together. I mean, we had been using, you know, the Memphis horns, partial sections, you know, with Bowlegs Miller and the guys coming, you know. But we wound up with, with Harrison Calloway and Aaron Varnell and Ronnie Eads and uh, Harvey Thompson. Harvey. And uh, we still use some of the Memphis guys occasionally, but that basically became the Muscle Shoals horns. And then Charles Rose came in a little later 
into the scene, you know, because we never used a bone before. It was always two tenors, Barry, and trumpet, you know. And uh, and you played percussion in, in the Fame Gang, too. Right, I played, I'd get on the floor and play. We played live. We did, we, uh, you know, we, we played on all of Rick's product, plus they gave us this project to do, which a lot of the guys had the same feelings about it, and if you read some of their interviews about it, uh, some of it's positive and some of it's negative. I know Junior, <laughs> Junior's opinion of the thing was not well, not, not very well taken at all. He thought the, the whole project of doing the, the hits, the album of number ones that Capitol wanted us to do, which was a, a great project. I mean, it really is still a great sounding record and a lot of great creativity because we didn't have a lot of technology to work with. We just came up with ideas. I came up with all kinds of ideas, running stuff through the Leslie and singing through the Leslie and getting Harvey to sing and play the flute. Pulled out my old jazz tricks that I'd learned from listening and got Harvey to do that and just anything we could think of, you know, and co-wrote all these uh, originals that we would play in between when we had a chance, but they wanted us to do this album of the number one songs of that year, 69, I guess it was. Yeah, it came out as Solid Gold Muscle From Shows. Muscle Shows, yeah. And so we did our best to come up with a very unique instrumental arrangement for all of these hit records, these hit singles, you know. And even though it was very creative and funky and and really fine it didn't really represent us and in our spare time which wasn't a lot in between rick's projects everybody still came in every day because they were on salary and we'd come in every day and we'd record and we cut all this good original funky stuff that just stayed in the can all these years but we knew that we didn't have a chance to go out and back the artists that we cut the hits on, like the Stax guys and like the Motown guys would go out on these reviews. We knew Rick wasn't going to ever let us go out and do that, although we would have loved to have done that and gone out as, as a rhythm section and played our own original stuff, you know. We could have done that. But he wasn't going to let us out of his sight and let us out of the studio long enough to go do that. So we never really got to promote the fame gang, and not many people even know what that is, who that is, or anything about that, you know, because of the fact that we we were just stuck there in the studio, you know. Yeah, and just for who's not familiar, you, you mentioned Ring, who is Freeman Brown, Freeman Brown who was the yeah. drummer yes. um, in the fame gang. And you ended up releasing a 45 with an original cold grits and gravy that you guys collectively wrote yes that is one of the funkiest tracks yes. ever recorded in muscle shells if you ask it's me. it's a good one it's a real good one and uh you know that we, we've got everybody at we're on the floor working on the thing got the groove and got got it all together and said well what are we going to call this i said grits and gravy yeah Everybody liked that, so, you know, we went with it. Yeah, and while at Fame, 
you also uh, got to produce some artists on your own. And one of the artists that came down was uh, Bobby Hatfield, who was a member of the Righteous Brothers. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that album? Yeah, Hats was a great guy, man. I, I really, really got to know him, and I really loved him. And I never told him. I guess I should have, but I didn't. I never told him, but he, you know, and Bill Medley were, were two of my heroes. I mean, the Righteous Brothers were were heroes to, to all us guys, especially when I was at Auburn. We did a lot of their songs, and we even cut our hair like they did. You know, they squared it off in the back. I don't know if you remember how they used to wear their hair, but it was, we cut each other's hair across the back, you know. I mean, we were really into the Righteous Brothers. And as it turned out, Rick recorded Bill Medley, and I wound up producing Bobby Hadfield. But I never told Hats about that, you know, that we used to do their songs and all that. But he he wound up recording some of my tunes, and we really hit it off. And uh, it was, the album was called Messing in Muscle Shoals. And he loved my hat. I used to wear this hat all the time. I'm a hat guy. And I wore it all the time, and he loved it. And it just so happened we wore the same hat size, so he wound up wearing my hat the whole time we cut his album. And uh, when it came time to do the cover for the album, he wanted to know if he could wear it. I said, sure. So he's sitting on the front of the album, he's got my hat on. So I had a friend bring down, buy him one, just like it, from Lansky Brothers in, in Memphis, and bring it down the day he was leaving. And they got here just, just before he got on the airplane. I, was, I thought I was going to miss it. And they got here just in time with it in a box, you know, and I handed him the box before we got on the plane. He took it out and put it on. And he just, he loved it, man. He, I don't think he ever took it off. But uh, he sent me a jacket. I, I'll never, I couldn't believe it. He had this beautiful leather jacket that he wore from L.A. when he came to town. And I commented on, man, and it was like silk lined, you know, it was beautiful. I've still got it. And oh, about a month after he left, after us finishing the album, I get this package in the mail at Fame, and he had sent me that jacket. He had sent me a cop walk gone and bought me a jacket, just like his jacket. And I've still got that jacket. And I've still got that old hat. And I still wear it. <laughs> But I loved Bobby Hatfield. We had a time when we were off, which wasn't much time. We stayed over at a hotel over in Florence. It used to be called the Tour Way Inn or something like that, maybe. Had a swimming pool. Anyway, we'd get in late, and you weren't supposed to get in the pool after hours, blah, blah, blah. But I'd been there so long because I was staying there, too. I was living there, too. And so we'd get some of us together over there and get a bunch of bottles of wine and just put them in the pool and just let them float by. And we'd all get in the pool and just relax, you know. Bottle of float by, take the cork out, take the swig and put it back in. <laughs> it float around to the next guy, you know. And that's how we relaxed at night and we kept it down, but we didn't bother the management and they, they got used to us and they loved having Bobby there too, you know, cause he was here a while. And uh, it was a great project. It really was a fun project. We unfortunately didn't have a big hit out of it, but but he loved cutting here. Yeah, 
and another recording project you were in charge of that not that many people know about is the Ken Ball Adderley session. Oh yeah, man. Well, that scared me to death, needless to say. I mean, I've always been a jazz fan, but I wasn't I wasn't really that knowledgeable of Cannonball. I didn't, at the time, know his real story and his, you know, his his catalog and his his body of work. I just knew he was a great jazz player, and his his brother Nat, you know, was a great trumpet player. But I didn't really know. I wish I'd have known more then, you know. But uh, Capitol sent him to fame to record, and I had no idea what they wanted to do or how they wanted to do it. So I just set them up like we always set everything up, set the horns up there in the front, across in the line, you know, and set everybody up where we always did. None of them had a preference. They went along with my, you know, setup. We got to the bass player, and I wasn't sure how to mic his bass, his double bass, because I'd never mic'd one before. And I wanted to get, of course, the best sound I could get for this this great artist. And all these players were the the greats, Joe Zawinul, and all these guys were, at the time, I didn't know, uh, some of the greatest in jazz history were right there, you know, together. And I said, well, he said, you got a little small pencil mic? I said, yeah, you know, and I got it. He said, you got some rubber bands? I said, yeah. So we got some rubber bands. He said, look here. We get down to the bridge, you know, the arc, the whole arc in the bottom, the bridge down the bottom of the base. He said, okay, we're going to wrap the rubber band around one side. We're going to put the mic in there, wrap the other one on the other side, wrap the mic over from this side, and point it up toward the neck, up toward the strings, and run the cord down, you know. And that's the way I want you to mic it, and we'll get a good sound that way. I said, yeah, but that chord's going to rattle because he's played a little bit and it would vibrate a little bit. I said, we, got, we, can't handle that, we can't handle that rattle. He said, just tape it. I said, no, man, I can't do it. I can't put tape on that beautiful instrument. He said, just tape, tape it, won't hurt it. I argued with him about five minutes and he said, tape it. So I took a little smallest piece of tape I could get and put it on the chord I was still hated. I hated myself for taping on that beautiful bass, but I did. And that's the way we recorded the bass. And I said, Mr. Adderley, how would you, how, how do you want to do this? He said, I want you to load up the tape, turn it on, and just let it run. And so I got several, quite a few reels of tape, you know, and, and had them ready to go unboxed and ready to slap on the machine. And uh, so I got up there and got a, got a level on everybody, a little bit of a sound check. And I'm, I, what amazed me is how they, how they worked. I wasn't used to this. They didn't say anything to each other. He didn't say anything to them. They just, I'd turn on a recording and I said, we're rolling. And all of a sudden, they just start playing this wonderful piece of music. And, you know, and then they'd stop. Tape still up. They'd start playing this other wonderful piece of music. I'm sure he gave them some kind of little signal or something, but I, and they didn't have a set lit. They didn't have, you know, it was just, it just blew my mind how they did that. 
he obviously knew kind of what he wanted to do, and I guess he relayed that some way. But that's the way they recorded the whole thing. We, it just went from top to bottom for I don't know how many hours we worked. It wasn't but one day. And finally, they stopped playing, put their instruments down, and started putting them in the case. So I turned the machines off, and I went out. And I said, uh, what would you like to do now? And he said, ship those tapes to Capitol. <laughs> and they walked out the door, and that was it. He didn't listen to a playback. He didn't tell me anything about titles. You know what I'm saying? I w I'd give anything if I had a copy of that now, if I had to run a mono machine, but I was so busy and intent on getting the best I could get and keeping my eyes on him, I didn't run a mono, or I'd have had a copy of that stuff, you know. But uh, I shipped them to Capitol as they requested, and you know, that was my Cannonball Adderley experience. <laughs> yeah, and that, while working at Fame, you continued writing songs, and those songs got recorded by quite a few artists, including the Osmonds did Double Lovin', Candy Staten did Hard on a String, and a very important collaborator was George Jackson, who you co-wrote a lot of those songs with. Yeah, George is my brother. Yeah, my favorite co-writer out of all the people I've worked with. And I've worked with some great ones. Not to not to exclude yourself as a good writer. And George was just, we just had something special, man. We never left the room without something good, you know. They weren't all hits, but they, everything we got recorded made the charts. I can, I can at least say that, you know. And uh, I just loved writing with George. I miss him so much, man. And he, later on, went on to just keep writing hits, hit after hit for Malico, you know. But uh, when George's deal was up at Fame, he asked me, man, what should I do? Where should I go? I said, man, why don't you go try sound, you know, see what they can do for you. Because he didn't, he didn't seem like he really felt like he wanted to re-up with, with Fame at the time, so he went to sound and signed with them, and I later was signed at sound as a staff writer when my deal ran out at fame, and I didn't feel like re-upping either. Uh, you know, we, we co-wrote some stuff over there, but of course then he went on when Malico took the place to write lots of hits, you know, for Johnny Taylor and for all their artists, you know. Uh, he was just a, a songwriting machine. Everybody in Memphis, George was the man you went to if you had an idea, because all the writers knew George would write it for them, and they'd get a piece of it and get it cut, you know. And that's what we did in Memphis, actually, a studio that I went up there and operated for Rick was basically a demo factory, you know, for all the Memphis writers. Uh, that were signed to Fane, we did all the demos up there, and 99% and of them were co-written with George because they'd go to George, and George would bring them to me, and we'd demo them, you know. He'd, he'd tighten them up, and we'd demo them. Yeah, and 
Hard on a String was actually more recently recorded by Jason Isbell on two of his projects. Too. Yeah, and he did such a good job on it. I was so proud of that record. I, it, it amazed me that he recorded that. I was listening to that album yesterday again, and it just, it, it just out of the blue, that song comes out of that album. And what amazed me is he said that that was one of his most requested songs. And the young people really liked that song at his shows. And I thought, man, that's great. You know, that's really great that they they still like that good old R&B, you know. Yeah. And then Fame, for a while, had a studio in Memphis, too. And you were involved with that as well. Yeah, I went up to set it up and get it started and, and run it. And then I came back. Uh, from Memphis to help Rick with his productions and be his, you know, his, his production assistant and uh, and play on sessions and engineer. And uh, he sent Sonny Limbo to Memphis to take my place up there and run it for a while longer. You know, it never did, it never did turn into a custom studio because there wasn't that much business going on in Memphis. I mean, nowhere. You know, there really wasn't. American was still doing some work in Dan Penn's studio. And, of course, uh, uh, Willie, Royal. Willie was doing his thing, you know, uh, still. But there just wasn't that much custom work going on. Stax is doing their thing. But uh, it, it was never going to be like a big money-making uh, custom studio. It was just basically there for the for the writers' benefit because we got so many great songs, you know, by having that facility there instead of all of them having to come down because we were having to bring them down on the bus or a carload of them, you know, every week or every other week, trying to do demos and and Rick doing his project at the same time, you know, and it just it it. It was just wasn't working out. It was a conflict with studio time, you know. Yeah, and then the seventy came along, and uh, Bill Lowry hired you to work for him in Atlanta. Right. How did that come about? Well, I had to make a choice. It was the Memphis thing, like I said. It 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 served its purpose, and I came back to shows. Uh, and then after I decided not to re-up my exclusive contract with Fame. I had Carl Ingeman, who was the vice president of A&R, Capitol Records, offered me a job to come to Los Angeles and run his studio for him. And I love Carl, he's such a good man, such a talented man. And we got to know him really well because he brought the Osmonds. You know, and it was really our contact with Capitol. And uh, I recorded David Huff and the Giants for Capitol, you know, and Carl was responsible for that. But, you know, I went out there, checked it out. We always used his studio to do our string dates anyway, Rick's projects, anything that we did here that needed strings. We'd go to L.A. and use Carl's studio you know, and one of the two arrangers that we always used out there. And I, I just, I checked it out, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the greatest studio by any means. It was pretty small, 
And he didn't have any custom work hardly at all going on. I mean, they'd come, people would come in and do string dates and this, that, and other. He didn't even really have a full-time engineer. Uh, the people w that did their projects would bring their own engineers with them, or either he'd hire one that was, you know, independent and just moved around town. But I got to thinking about it. I said, man, if I come out here and there's nothing going on, and I'm supposed to run around town and try to create all this business. That's not what I want to do. I want to produce records and write songs. And that possibly could have happened because I did have some people I knew out there, some friends out there still. And who knows, I might could have gone out there and started an empire, just make it a Muscle Shoals West or something, which I would have done, of course, gotten some Muscle Shoals guys out there. but. It just didn't feel right to me, you know. It just, something just didn't feel, I said, if I get out here and get lost in this shuffle, they may never see me again in muscle shows. And I was really lonesome for shows, and I just didn't see, see that working for me at the time. So I came back, passed on that deal, and I made up my mind I was going to Atlanta because I knew Bill Lowry, and I knew what a good man he was, Bob Ray had already made the decision to go. Sonny Limbo had always, already made the decision to go, be involved with, with running the studio and doing some production. They already had a rhythm section put together, you know, including some shows guys. And I said, man, I could go over there and start a publishing deal with Bill and do some production for him and some engineering and, and manage the studio, and I can continue doing what I want to do and, and been doing rather than get stuck in one one pocket, you know. So that's what I did. I went to Atlanta and went to work for Bill as his uh, studio manager and uh, as, a, as a staff producer, house producer and engineer and played sessions and wrote, wrote songs, you know, and uh, worked with him with his publishing company and we cut a bunch of records over there. We cut all all of his artists. Plus, we got we got artists from CBS, and we got artists from different lots of different labels. You know, we wound up cutting uh, some really good projects over there. And Atlanta was 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 doing pretty well. It was, they were, you know, bang was was happening and all that. Of course, it, there wasn't any of the hip hop or the rap thing going on, which they're the capital now, I guess, over there. I'm glad I'm not over there in the middle of that now because that wouldn't have been my thing, you know. But uh, we working in this real old funky studio, but I got to meet and know all the great writers that he had. I mean, you know, Joe South and, you know, and Mac Davis, was they all came through the Lowry School, you know, Mac, and Jerry Reed and all these guys, man, They, you know, Billy Joe Royal and... Uh, they all those guys, and I wound up recording quite a few of them, you know, for Bill, and got to know them all, and uh, and that was cool. That was really cool. And Atlanta was a great town then. It was a great place to live, but it wasn't Muscle Shoals, and I really I missed shows. I was homesick for shows, so I decided this is what it is, and it's not going any further. You know, we were just picking up production deals that Bill would 
would get for us, and we'd get on our own, and and we were clicking along, but it was just same old, same old, you know. I mean, I, it, 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 it wasn't Muscle Shoals. So yeah. I decided I want to come back home and, and mainly just write songs and play sessions. So I signed with Sound and uh, became a staff writer for Muscle Shoals Sound and played sessions and just, just stuck to that. Didn't, didn't get involved in any production stuff. Played, played a lot of live music with different groups, different bands here and there, but mostly just played sessions and wrote songs, you know. And uh, Yeah, but even before you went to Atlanta, you co-wrote a song with Barbara Wyrick called Tell Me a Lie. We were both staff writers at Fame. And to yeah. me, that, that might be your, certainly the, the most successful song, but maybe also so, your masterpiece. Song have been very good to me. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I bought my first new car <laughs> off of that record. And it's been covered I, I don't know how many times, but I got t several BMI awards off of that one. And uh, I got the one I was very proud of, it was a Millionaire Award. Uh, BMI Millionaire Award on Tell Me a Lie, which is, uh, it is, of course, it'd have to be one of my favorite songs, but I think it's one of the best songs. Uh, at the time, it was the biggest song in Fane's catalog. It was all the way up until Gary Baker's song. Uh, I swear. I swear, and then that topped that one. But until then, that was the biggest song in that whole catalog, and, and probably still is the second largest song in that catalog, because it's an EMI song now. Yeah, and also you cut a great album on Sammy Cho, who had first hit with, with "Tell Me a Lie" that I, yeah. I, that I that I love. Where did you guys do do that album? Do you remember that? We did. We did some of it at Fane. We did some of it in Atlanta. We cut a lot of other sides and another album owner in Atlanta, but we cut it at Fame, and. You know, uh, some of the Atlanta guys played on some of the later stuff. Uh, all those guys went on to do other things. Of course, Bob Ray's back here, you know, but like Steve Buckingham was the rhythm guitar player in our section in Atlanta, and he went on to be <laughs> he be, he he went on to be the uh, the head of A and R at CBS in Nashville there for a while, you know, and uh, a lot of the guys well. Mike Huey, who was our drummer in Atlanta, he moved to L.A. and played drums for Glenn Fry for a while. Now he's an attorney in L.A. <laughs> he decided he wanted to get into big bucks, so he went back to school. Now he's an attorney. And, uh, you know, like I say, it's just... Uh, but those guys, every time I listen to those records, man, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of memories there. And that was a really good album, and Sammy Joe's version is my favorite version of, of any of our songs that she did. I just love her versions the best. I mean, she just so soulful, you know. Yeah, and Janie Frick, he and Betty Levette and a lot of other people ended up recording it later. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you came back to Muscle Shoals, went to work as a as a songwriter for Muscle Shoals Sound, and you ended up co-writing with Randy McCormick and Clayton Ivey and different people yeah. besides writing on your own. 
but he also got to play on certain sessions. Uh, is there anything from that time period that, that sticks out? That sound? That yes. must show sound. Okay, all the work I did with sound was in the new studio down on, on the river. I know you I played mean, on Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming. Yeah, which that was a great honor. And uh, the last time I saw Jerry Wexler, bless his soul, I love Jerry Wexler, was out at the Hall of Fame. There was some event going on out there. I couldn't find him. I wanted to say hello to him anyway. Somebody said, oh, I think he's gone to the restroom. So I started down the hall that way, and so he was coming out, and I said, Jerry, man, it's good to see you. I just wanted to thank you again. This has been quite a while after we'd done the Dylan album. I said, I just want to thank you again for for booking me on that album. It was a great honor, and of all the percussion players that you know and have used, the greatest in the world, you picked me, and he said, it's because you got the best feel. And I said, man, means everything to me that you called me. And uh, Dick Cooper told me that Barry was, was fighting real strong for Tom Rohde, which Tom's, I love Tom Rohde, he's the best conga player that that's ever been around our area. I mean, he was a better conga player than I am. But I'd, I'd, I'd take him on on anything else any time, and he knew that. But uh, Barry always really liked Tom. But Wexler, he said, no, I want Mickey. He's got the best feel. And so I got the gig, and that was a great honor to play on that album, even though it was very strange. I never really got to talk to Dylan much. Didn't uh, didn't get to spend much time with him. We was just in, do the work. Jerry told me what he wanted. We experimented. He got what he wanted out of me. We packed up. They left. That was it. <laughs> Everybody wants to know, well, how was Dylan? How was it, man? Well, he didn't say anything. He just sat there by Jerry in the control room, and I guess Jerry would ask him, well, what do you think about this part I'm, I'm having him try here? Do you like that? Well, you know, obviously, Bob went along with Jerry's ideas. You know, if they didn't, they didn't tell me, and we'd try something else, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was fun. It was great. And I, I played on so many great, great artists down there at Sound, all the great blues acts, you know, that I've always known and loved, and Bobby Blue Bland and all these, making these tracks for all these, Johnny Taylor and all these guys, man, I mean, you know, uh, it was just wonderful to to play on those sessions and play live. I mean, you know, I played live on all that stuff, which I love to do. I mean, every now and then, of course, I'd be there after everybody's gone, overdubbing some more. Everybody always had some more ideas they'd want. And that's cool, you know, because I'd have ideas I wanted to put on there too if they had time, you know. But but we did the basics live. I always played live with the rhythm section and and uh, everybody loved that. And I think Roger really liked it. I mean, you know, he we uh we really we locked in on some good grooves, you know. Yeah, somebody else who came down was Levon Helm. Absolutely, and man, Levon was the greatest. He, he was the most easygoing guy, and it was just great recording with him. And he did one of my songs, which I, I love his take on my tune. Uh, you it's know, God, God bless, them. God bless them all. And it was it was as if I had written that song for Levon. I mean, it just fit him to a T. 
and he was just uh, such an easygoing guy, man, but he had such a unique drum style, and, and Roger and I talked about it. It just, it, it, his playing is really different when you listen to him, and of course his singing and playing affects how he played, but he very, very had a very unique drum style, and if you listen to his his drums, you know, it, it, it is quite different than than uh, if if he were just playing, but his singing affected how he played, and and even when he wasn't singing, he'd still play that style. He wasn't fancy; it was just a very unique style, you know. He had this old funky drum kit. He had this floor tom. You know, he didn't use a big kit; he just basic kit. You know, I think he had one mounted tom and a floor tom, just very basic. And he had this old floor tom, and the head on it was green. It was so old. And that floor tom, and, and he, he, he wouldn't care at all, it, it, me telling this story. His floor tom, he used as his rolling table. And the whole time in between working, he'd be rolling joints. And so he'd be a little pile of smoke on his floor tom, you know. And that thing had been used for that for so many years that it turned that tom head green. I said, Levon, if you ever run out of smoke, all you got to do is take that tom and put it in some boiling water, man, and you're going to have some hellacious tea. <laughs> and I hope that that head is still around, so I hope his wife still got that drum head or his daughter, somebody, you know. Yeah, but you, you don't, didn't just work at Muscle Shoals Sound, you also did some stuff at Wishbone, and one of your favorite projects that you ever played on, I believe, was an album by uh, William Smitty Smith. Yeah, Smitty. Man, you know, I, I never hear anybody else talk about that album, but I always would bring it up to Clayton uh, when we'd be talking about some of the old days, because that album will always stick in my mind as some of the most fun I ever had on a session. Smitty was another one of those great, always smiling, laughing, happy, happy-go-lucky musician, songwriter, singer-songwriters, you know, keyboard player. He was he came from L.A. and they set him up in a little trailer outside the studio there, and so he'd stay, you know, and then just come in and record and go out and spend the night there. But we had the most fun recording that album when it was kind of jazzy R&B. I guess that's why I liked it so much. It leaned toward the jazz side, good R&B jazzy type thing. And it was all live, and we had Jim Horn there with all of his horns, and he plays everything, all laid out on the floor. His wooden flutes, all his saxophones, I mean everything. And so everything went down live. His solos, he'd pick up something. When it comes out, he'd just pick it up and play it. And I had all my stuff set up, and whatever I felt like, I just played it. I mean, it wasn't like, well, we'll come back and add this. I'll play this now, and we'll come back and add it. I just went for the whole thing. Everybody did. The whole album, we just went for it. Just total live performance, you know, like we were playing a, a gig. And Smitty would sing and play. And it was just such a good feeling, happy, fun project. And we'd, we'd cut at night. At the bone, we always cut at night out there. Uh, 
start, you know, eight or nine o'clock and go to whenever in the morning, you know. We, we'd cut at fame and early, and then at sound at one o'clock usually, and then at night we'd, we'd cut out at Wishball. But I don't know, there's something about that Smitty album. I think a big part of it was the fact that we did it all live, and it was, was a jazz-oriented kind of thing, some really good songs, and Smitty was a good singer, good player, and then Horn playing those solos live, you know, and just smoking them on all those different instruments. It was just, it was just a magical album to play on, you know. Yeah. And then art, other artists who came down from Canada, his name was Greg Adams. Yeah. And you wrote with him, produced him. Can you, he's not that well known down here, I guess, but would you mind sharing a little bit about that project? Uh, Greg, you know, I talked to him maybe six months ago, just out of the blue, he called me. And I said, man, I know this voice. And I hadn't seen him in all those years since, since Atlanta, and that's been a long, long time ago. Uh, Greg was from Canada. He was living in Toronto, and he was signed to Attic Records. And we had done several products for Attic. And we, uh, he came to Atlanta, and we did an album. We spent at least three months on that album. It, that album nearly killed me. <laughs> but we, we, were, we had so much going on, Sonny and I were splitting the production duties. He was working on a group. We were supposed to be co-producing all these groups, but it, we had so much work at the time. He was taking one, I was taking one. He was at Lowry working. We had to rent a studio downtown called the Sound Pit, which was a really good studio. And I was working on Greg's album, Greg's album downtown at the Sound Pit at the same time. And I had Randy McCormick and and all the guys, you know, a lot of the guys from here over there in Atlanta working on this album on Greg. Greg was a good songwriter, good singer. And we worked on that thing and worked on it worked on it. I still really like it. But we spent too much time on it. But we were trying to get what he wanted, you know, and I was doing my best to do it. And we just about killed the engineer and about killed me. Uh, and they kept calling, pressuring us to finish, 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 which we finally did. And, and we, you know, it was a very good project. And uh, we later on worked with several other addict artists. I worked with uh, also a CBS Canada artist, Shirley Eichhardt. And we cut an album on her, but we did that in Toronto at uh, Eastern Sound. But... Uh, Greg became a really good friend, man, and he loved working with us down south, you know, and, and really loved being in Atlanta and, and doing the record with all the guys and got, got to know everybody. And like I say, we just, we worked on it until we were just about crazy, you know, but we, uh, we got it done. But that was the year I told you we did seven albums in one year. Now, that don't sound like much now because you can knock an album out with all this digital stuff in two weeks. But back then, it was nothing for people to work three months on an album. I mean, that was an everyday occurrence with Rick. But my God, we did seven albums. I did. I'm talking engineering them and producing them 
in one year, and I mean, you figure in maybe four hours of sleep a day, and it wasn't that much a lot of days in a year's time. So I finished the year out wrapping my Eldorado around the telephone pole a block from my hotel, just went to sleep. I said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to take on this kind of work anymore, you know, because it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. I'm going to pick and choose and get real about this thing, you know. But uh, I don't know if Greg recorded any more after that or not. It's the only project I did with him, only time we worked with him in Atlanta. But uh, he, he was a good singer, good artist, and Shirley was too. Uh, we did the tour with Shirley fronting Lou Rawls all the way across Canada. Uh, and I played percussion in the group. And then when we got back from the tour, we went into Eastern. Sonny came up from Atlanta, and 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 all the guys were already there because we were all on tour with Shirley. And then we recorded the album in, in Toronto, you know, spent... I guess three or four weeks there in Toronto. I loved Toronto. I really did. Love to go back. Yeah. Well, you mainly worked in the studio, but as you just mentioned, you, you got a chance to hit the road every now and then. Somebody else you got to play live with a little bit later was Cherry Reed. And yeah. He was also somebody who was really complimentary of your percussion skills. Would you mind sharing how you guys got to collaborating well i was like i say i was playing percussion live on, on most all the session work over that fame uh running back and forth between working in the control room and running out and playing depending on the song you know but when rick was going to produce reed you know we had all these these different songs and some of them these crazy songs you know, just really were aching for these sounds, you know. And I uh, well, like the Mac Davis thing as well, you know, Poor Boy Boogie and some of these things where I played the scrub board and buck danced on a piece of plywood and blah, blah, blah. Did all these crazy things on the Reed record I did too. And, and Jerry was, man, we couldn't record for laughing. I mean, that guy, he kept us rolling the whole time we were trying to record, you know. But... It, it was just a perfect project for sound effects is basically what I would, would say I played on that record was was a lot of sound effects and, and things. And so when uh, it came time for him to do Austin City Limits live, he called me and asked me if I'd come out and play on the show with him. And so I said, sure. So I crated my junk up and got on the plane and his, some of his guys in his band met me and we went to the studio there and set up and did the show live with Jerry, you know, and the guys the guys told me, they said, now there's one thing, you're gonna have to take your hat off. And I said, take my hat off? I don't, people don't usually ask me that. He said, well, we got a rule. Jerry's the only one who can wear a hat in the band. <laughs> I said, okay. So I took my, wore my hat to the gig anyway, and when we got in there and got ready to, to uh, tape, I took it off and hung it right on the very front of my rack holding my gear so it could be seen anyway, even though I didn't have it on. That hat is, is hanging on the rack, you know. But 
Jerry and I hit it right off because he loved these little things I was doing, these little sounds and the scrub board and the, you know, the little sounds I played on on those those songs that we recorded with Rick at Fame. And uh, man, he was he was crazy on that show. He jumped around and swung off the camera, you know, booms and I mean it was it was a trip. But uh, he had a good band. Boy, he had a good band, you know. And I'm trying to remember the name of the fiddle player that he got. One of the best fiddle players in the world. He had to play on that show with us. Uh, that he got to come out from Nashville and play with us. And I can't think of his name to save my life. But Reed was jumping around on the stage. And this guy was playing his fiddle through an amp, a little Fender amp. And Reed was jumping around and stepped on his cord and broke the cord, pulled the cord out of the amp, just broke it off of the plug. But Jerry, the fiddle player just laughed and he just kept on playing, you know. Anyway, he, he was just laughing at Jerry, but we all, I've been looking like, like, oh no, he shouldn't have done that, you know. But Jerry, he didn't even know he did it till the song was over, you know. But he was having a ball on that show, and everybody loved Jerry Reed out there. And man, I got to tell you, They've come a long way since then. This was a long time ago, and the, you watch that show now and the technology and everything. They had a great crew together. I mean, those, those young people, they had it down to a T. They had that show. It was so professionally done, you know, and everybody knew what they were doing, and it just bam, 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 bam. Just, it was very impressive how they did that show, you know. Yeah. Around the same time, you wrote a song called Nobody's Baby Tonight that got recorded by a couple different artists. Can you tell us a little bit about that song? Well, that's still one of my favorite songs. Uh, I know it's a hit song. Billy Sherrill knew it was a hit song. I pitched it quite a bit. I'd get real close. Everybody that ever heard it liked it. Finally, the publishing company at Sound, Carol, as a matter of fact, sent it to Billy Sherrill. Billy called Sound and wanted to know who the writer was and something about the writer and whatever. And I remember she, she told me, she said, Billy said, well, do the girls like him? Does he look good? I mean, you know. She said, "Yeah, yeah, he's he's got he's got the package." So he said, "Well, I want to see him. I want to meet the man that wrote this song and sung this song." So I went to know. Of course, I knew Billy. I'd met him before, but he didn't remember me, you know. And I went up there, and he said, "Man, this is a great song." I said, thank you. I think so, too. I think it's a hit song. And he said, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to see if we can get Charlie Rich to cut it. I said, man, that'd be the dream come true. Couldn't think of anybody in the world that could ever sing it better, you know. He said, well, I want to try to do that. He said, if I can't get Charlie, I want to cut it on you. We'll talk about it. I said, okay. 
So we tried to get Charlie Rich to cut this song, and Charlie loved the song, and he said, man, you know, I'm just not really into recording anymore right now. I want to just lay back, do a show every now and then, and run my chicken franchises, you know? And that's all he was into. So Billy couldn't get him in the studio. And Billy said, man, what do you want to do? Do you want to sing or you want to write? And of course, I'm sitting there with the great Billy Sherrill asking me this unanswerable question. Of course, I wanted to say, man, I want to do both. I mean, you know, but I'm going, okay. I don't know what he wants to hear, but I really want to write, Billy. But if I had a chance, I'd like to sing. Because, see, he and Al Gallico were partners. And I had been talking to Gallico and had a publishing deal in the works because Billy told Al, you need, to, you need to sign Mickey. You need to sign him. So Al and I had already talked, and I had a deal in the works. And I said, man, well, Billy said, well, we want to talk some more about it. Well, the next thing I knew, he'd gone in with Gene Watson and cut it again. But he'd also cut it before that on Tony Joe White. And that wasn't Tony Joe's song at all. And I love Tony Joe, but that just not was not his song. Gene Watson did a good job on the song, but he didn't sing it as well as I sing it. And Billy knew that. And I always kept hoping, man, this might come through. I'm gonna just wait and see if it does. Well, Billy just retired. I mean, he just, you know, I guess maybe if I'd have gone and camped out, he might have produced that song on me. And I believe we could have had a hit record. I really do. But I knew his heart wasn't totally into getting back into production full time or anything. He was just kind of working with Gallico on some songwriters and songs, whatever. And and so as a result of that situation, I waited around and gave them a chance to just see how interested they really were. And I finally just let the whole thing slide and decided there wasn't enough interest there to prove to me that I was going to be their man, you know. So I, I just let it slide. And Billy, he didn't produce anything else after that, you know. But I sometimes... Wonder, man, you blew it. You could have maybe had Billy Shearer produce at least one record on you and gone ahead and done the deal with, with Gallico, which might have lasted a year. But I'd have been up there in the rat race, the Nashville Songwriters rat race, if I'd have signed that thing with him, and I knew that. I'd had to been up there three or four days a week, you know. So that's the end of that story. <laughs> But you remain. You kept on singing. You, the new breed ha, have been re, reuniting at times. Uh, you, Charles Rose, and another group of musicians started a Muscle Shoals Soul Review. Yeah, you great singles. Great band. Played it. Tell me about Gusty Winds. Oh, oh, Gusty, Gusty Winds. 
Well, Augustus, this old guy, he, uh, he only come out every now and then, and he, uh, he kind of a blues kind of guy. He, he likes the old style blues. He, he, he don't go no, he, he don't do no rock and roll. He, only rocking he does is in a chair. And he, uh, he come out only every now and then, and he only come out at night. Gusty winds, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> But the soul review that you guys did, you started a band, including horn section, that performed the, the classics recorded here, along other R&B nuggets. Um, tell me just a little bit about that, that band, if you don't mind. Well, Charles and I wanted to put this great band together. And, of course, we wanted it to be all Muscle Shoals. We want it totally Muscle Shoals players, you know. Roger couldn't do it. We really wanted to get Rog, you know, but he couldn't do it. But we got everybody else we could uh, and then filled in, you know, around it. But Charles wanted it to be a horn band, of course. I mean, you know, and it was a horn band. There was... Many a night that horn section just about blew me off stage, I mean. But because, uh, you know, we had some great, great players in that band, and we did all the good songs that we all used to know and love and used to play, you know, in other bands. Uh, and then we had Mary Mason, who sang some of the female tunes for us, Not Enough, and we never could get it to the point where she was doing as many songs as I wanted her to do. So it put the whole load on me, you know. But it was a really, really great R&B band. And, and, you know, with Kelvin playing guitar, man, and David Hood on playing bass. And, you know, it just... And Charles would swap back and forth between keyboards and his trombone. I still, to this day, it amazes me how he does that, but he did it. And of course, he wrote all the arrangements out, you know, and everything. And it was, it was like, thirteen pieces, on some nights, you know. And we played some casinos, and we played a lot of private, private gigs, you know. And uh, but it was just such a big group. It was a big machine, you know, to move around, and it was expensive. Uh, and it took a lot of sound and and lights, and so it. it we kind of worked ourselves out of the business when, when the bottom fell out. And the casino work especially, it, it went down to like all they were booking was trios and duos, you know, and they, they couldn't book a band that big anymore. So it kind of started watering down. And everybody got busy going on tour with other people like Lyle Lovett. You know, Charles and Harvey would have to go with Lyle. And then there would be Kelvin, he's gone with the Aces or somebody, you know. And so we started having to sub too many people, and it just got to be uh, not the Muscle Shoals Soul Review. And it, we just kind of kind of let it lay, you know. But it is, it's still, it's still doable. It could still be done if anybody had the strength. I, I don't have the strength. But <laughs> we used to do it, though. Yeah, and at the same time, you with Cherry McGee started something that at that point I'm not sure 
you were aware of it, but looking back, I think it was probably the most important incubator for local songwriters. I believe from around 97 to 2007. That sounds about right. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Muscle Shoals Songwriter Showcase. Okay, we basically we started out just wanting to do go, just go play some gigs, you know, just just do a duo. And then Jerry said, "Well, Jerry always, anytime he had a gig, he had a little group of guys he he'd put together, call them call them the jukebox band, and they'd be different people, you know, just whatever. He'd he'd book a gig and he'd." maybe three pieces to play with him or whatever. And he'd always get any friends he had in him, come out and sit in. So he could just sit down, you know, and let them play. Uh, so he said, well, I'll tell you, let's, let's find us a place to play. Let's find a place where we can do this, and we'll get all our friends to come out and hang, and they can sit in and play some, play some with us, and get up and play some of their stuff, and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, that sounds good. So we went to... Finally wound up at the, uh, at the Holiday Inn uh, and worked out a deal with Linda over there. And as it turned out, we started getting all the guy, all the musicians started coming out. This became the hang. And we started getting them all to come out and sit in and do a song or two of their own, you know. And then before long, we had some Memphis guys even coming. Anybody come to town, they'd come. Wayne Jackson, any of these guys, they'd come in. Sit in and play with us, you know. And Jerry Kerrigan come in and play some percussion. Roger Hawkins come in and play a little. David come play a little bass. Everybody was coming in and sitting in and playing, you know. And any singers would come to town that they were recording, we'd get them to come over and sit in. We'd play behind them, you know. We kept that thing going for six or seven years almost, you know. And it, at toward the end there, we got we got an internet company involved with it, and they were. You know, they were working with us to put it out there, you know, taping it and putting it out. And we've got it all on tape, quite a bit of it on tape. We've got a lot of audio from the earlier days. No video, but just audio on cassette. Uh, but there were some wonderful nights there, and an awful lot of young songwriters got their first shot to get up there and, and perform. Chris Tompkins is one of them. And I remember Chris telling me, when he first did our show, he brought his keyboard and sat down. We were talking about people he, he liked, whatever. He said, man, all I ever want to be, I just want to be uh, uh, Jackson Brown. He said, man, I just want to be Jackson Brown. I just wish I could be Jackson Brown. I said, well, you listening to the right guy, you know. And so he would start doing these songs that he was writing that sounded a lot like some of Jackson's stuff, plus some of Jackson's stuff. And now the rest is history. You know, he's Grammy City now, you know. But he's just one example of some of the young guys that came through there that got up, performed, and girls too. Got up and played, kind of got into it, and they became regulars. We'd have them. They'd bring all their families and friends and get people to come. And, some record people and publishing people started coming hanging to see what was going on over there, you know. And some people got a chance to play and write and go on and do some things. Uh, and it gave us a chance for all the show's players, studio and live players, to all just get together as a group and mingle. The only place there ever was or any, every time there ever was, you know. 
uh, to do that. And everybody really loved that and still talk about it all the time, how they missed that gathering, you know. Yeah, and uh, we're almost at the end. Uh, we met shortly after the, sh the show Songwriters uh, Showcase ended, but maybe we can wrap things up just kind of getting to 2017 I, you know so what how have the last 10 years been musically for you well it's been uh, it's been quite different than it was all the years before because I hadn't worked as much as far as touring and as far as uh, just doing session after session on a daily basis you know I hadn't been doing that nearly as much, but I have been writing an awful lot more. And up until maybe three, three or four years ago, I was still playing out, trying to play live, doing singles, you know, playing my songs, going out and playing singles. It just got to where my hands just couldn't, couldn't do it anymore, couldn't hold up to it. But I was doing a lot of singles and just, just writing and, and playing sessions, playing percussion when I was called, you know, from people like yourself and projects uh, that have been going on. It's been wonderful to be a part of, and uh, it's been kind of more of being home and being in town working than it has been traveling, you know, and going to Nashville as much as I was going, you know. Absolutely, but I was certainly honored that you uh, agreed to... Uh, joined the Muscle Shoals All-Stars to play in Italy a couple of years ago uh, and fronting that band. Thrill of my life, man. I have you to thank for that. I, those people were so warm and receptive, and I had more fun playing that gig, busted foot and all. I had, honestly, I can say, I had more fun playing those Italy gigs than any time I've ever played live in my life. I had so much fun playing for those people and with that great band. You know, I mean, it was wonderful. I'll never forget it. Yeah, and uh, just to wrap things up, uh, a year after that, you played a show with the All-Stars here in Florence, and you got up and sang a couple of, of your songs. And uh, I was standing side stage with Jamie Hoff, Wet Willie, and Christine Allman, who's a member of the Saturday Night Live band, and we watched you perform, and they told each other, well, now we're going to school. <laughs> this is how that's, it's done. That's what you told me. You said something about they, we've just been schooled or something like that. And I said, man, that's a, that's a great honor coming from those two great singers. I mean, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, they know what they're talking about. I know they do. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing all your stories and being my guest today. Oh, and, uh, thank you very much, and uh, happy birthday, my brother. Thank you, and I just wish you the best of luck and health and uh, many more great songs coming your way in the future. Uh, same to you. Augustus A., same for me too, my man. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>